Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 336th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this most somber June 19th, or Juneteenth, I am privileged to be joined by a black writer, producer, and actor who has made race and class in America central subjects of many of the shows that he has created en route to becoming one of the most important and admired voices in television today. The 2019 recipient of the Producers Guild of America's Visionary Award, he made his name with Blackish, a comedy series which was inspired by his own family, which has run on ABC since 2014, which received a Peabody Award in 2015, and for which he received Best Comedy Series Emmy nominations in 2016, 2017, and 2018. The New York Times has called the show, quote, one of the funniest and most daring network sitcoms of the 2010s, close quote. He also presided over two blackish spinoffs, Grownish, which has run on Freeform since 2018, and Mixedish, which has run on ABC since 2019. And in April, he unveiled Black AF, a controversial comedy series in which he plays a heightened version of himself, think Curb Your Enthusiasm and Louie, which is also his first major project for Netflix, since he and the streamer signed a three-year, $100 million deal with an option for two additional years back in 2018. I'm talking, of course, about Kenya Barris. Over the course of our conversation, the 45-year-old and I discussed, in addition to the current moment of reckoning across America, the childhood traumas that shaped the man he is today, his struggles and frustrations in TV writers' rooms in the years preceding Blackish, what, despite Blackish's immense success and cultural impact, which prompted some to describe him as a modern-day Norman Lear, led him to ask to be let out of his contract with ABC and head over to Netflix, and what he has made of the divided response to his work since he got there, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Kenya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And uh, great to have you. Before we do what we normally do, which is bug our guests about their whole life story, I want to just kind of ask if I can uh, – well, I want to kind of ask how you're doing and where your thinking is at the moment in light of the fact that you know we're living through some pretty strange times between – coronavirus and then of course the the aftermath of mr floyd's killing um i i know that you probably more than most have pondered and written about race and things related to it and police brutality so i think a lot of people would like to know your general take at the moment i i think you know it's interesting i've um i'm in the process of of, and in talks with netflix uh pharrell and i sold a and I think Juneteenth being around this time is a big deal. Like that was a big deal for blackish. It was one of the things I said in my life that if I was able, ever able to do to make that a national holiday, Burrell actually just got the governor of Virginia to announce it as a, the second state in the union to get a paid state holiday. I'm, I'm emailing back and forth and talking to Gavin Newsom's office, um, to try. I wrote California to follow suit. You know, and corporations around the world are doing amazing things. I just spoke to you offline. Reed Hastings just donated $120 million to HBCUs, which is the biggest donation. So, I mean, I think corporations are doing the right thing. But for me, it is, you know, I think the the notion of having been blessed and lucky enough to be writing about these things and talking about them and to, you know, to America and not just black America, but America and doing it in a way that I feel like, you know, often have been considered white splaining and things like that, which I don't, I never really felt like it was like that. I think that it was sort of pulling the curtain back and giving context to blacks as well, you know what I'm saying, my community as well, things that we were feeling and talking and put them, putting them into words, into actions through, through gifted actors and doing the same thing with Black AF. I feel like it was, you know, a big thing. But this moment in particular, the reason that, you know, we decided we're going to, you know, Pharrell and I are going to do a musical. Um, we sold it first to to Oscar users at the public, and now we're going to do it as a, you know, with Jordan Cooper at Netflix as a film. The, this moment in particular, reason we've got into that, like we have to do this now, is because, you know, the, the the karmic irony of the notion that Colin Kaepernick was fired from his job for kneeling for the specific cause of police brutality, not racial equality, not equal pay, not, you know, this, that, but police brutality was, you know, basically blackballed from his job. And that now we have a young man losing his life, you know, in a tragic public way. And he's become the global symbol for this movement because a police officer brutalized him and snatched his life away by kneeling on his neck. You know, I think that we we say coincidence as as human beings, we don't know how to explain things we don't know how to explain. Although coincidence has been proven to be mathematically impossible, you know, this is not... This is not happening by chance. You know, these things, it's time. I think 
you know, it's the it's the moment that I've seen the most unified culturally movement since probably the 60s, which would not have happened with, you know, would not have been possible without white liberals walking alongside, you know, black civil rights protesters, you know what I'm saying, we came together. And I think that now I've seen signs that like, and it's not a white or black thing, but I've seen funny signs that like even white people are sick of white people's stuff, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, we're seeing the Karens and this and that. It's it's not a black, white thing. It really isn't. It's not a rich, poor thing. It's not a left, right thing. It's monsters against humanity, you know what I'm saying? And I think that we're all starting to see that we all have a right to our own humanity you know, and our own civility and our own being. And I think that we're coming together in a way that I haven't seen. So there's some beauty that comes out of out of this ugliness. And just, you know, in terms of how you are personally feeling and you're dealing and dealing with your own family uh, in terms of having these conversations, which, you know, we see the the simulated sort of fictional versions of those conversations in your work. But how do you talk to your kids, six kids about what's going on? Um, you know, it's interesting. My girls who are 21, 18 and 14 have been unbelievably activated. You know, my daughter was actually detained by police on Friday night when it happened. My um, 18 year old who just came home from NYU was involved in like a rubber bullet incident and seeing police cars set on fire to really shook her up as she was out there protesting. And my 14 year old started a group called Black Kids Who Care, Lola. And, you know, she started with some, you know, she's one of those, you know, quote unquote entitled kids or whatever. But, and I didn't know that this was in her, but she got with a bunch of other kids and they started a group and overnight had thousands of followers. And it's really well done and really well executed. And I didn't even want the parents to really sort of make, mess with it too much because they really started something and it's their world. And I was torn because I was like, I don't want my kids to get hurt. I don't like it, you know, but my kids' lives don't mean more than anyone else's kids' lives. And it's their future they're fighting for. And they grew up with me as a dad and hearing me talk, say what I'm saying. So this is how change happens. You know, we've heard it before, but the American Revolution was a, was a, not, was a violent protest. You know what I'm saying? And there's no, no version of that that has of any movement that's ever happened that really did not have some form of this. So it's scary times. And with, you know, I saw a meme who thought that COVID would lose a 48-3 uh, lead to, to racism. You know what I'm saying? But, um, well, it's interesting, though, isn't it, that you know, a part of me wonders if it was necessary for COVID to be there to cause people to stop long enough to really think about things that we've been seeing for years but haven't mobilized against. Maybe if it, I wonder if this moment would have been possible without the COVID break. That's the thing where I say coincidence is, is mathematically impossible. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like people, people were home. People were out of work. People were home. People were frustrated. People were scared, you know, and it was the sequence of events that led to this being able to happen globally, you know, and being able to get the response and the unification globally. And I feel like sometime, you know, things that we don't see are, you know, setting us up for things that will, will come, you know. So I, I definitely I agree with that completely. I think that the the timing was less than appropriate, you know, saying less than, you know, the, what we would like it to be. But at the same time, the perfect timing for it. So it's been, you know, uh, I have all the 2020 jokes that everyone else has. You know I'm saying I'm waiting for the aliens like everyone else. Um, but, you know, it's it's the age of Aquarius. It's, you know rising from a phoenix, you know, I think that sometime, you know, this is 
if you went back and look at great change throughout history, they were moments like this that seemed to be a lot of things compounding, aggregating into what may hopefully be, you know, a moment of change. Absolutely. Well, all right. Now I'm going to do our traditional start, which is to just ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So for folks who may not know, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was I was born in between Pacoima. I was born in Pacoima, California, moved to Inglewood. And uh, my dad was a general worked at General Motors in Van Nuys, California. He was an assembly line guy. And my mom was kind of a do whatever she needs to do. You know, stay at home mom slash real estate broker slash insurance agent slash works at department stores during during the holidays slash whatever she had to do, yeah. you know, to sort of help help it pitch in. And they parted ways when you were quite young, right? Yeah. Um, before I was 10, I think they were it was done actually before that. But yeah. I think they were officially done by the time I was like nine or 10. So do you know why they gave you the name Kenya? I do. My dad was um, a black, was in the Nation of Islam. And he was, you know, like at that moment, he was a, he was in the Nation of Islam doing quote, quote, <laughs> quote symbols because it was more so of like, you know, being a, a black NRA member at that time. But, well, you know, he was a revolution. It's like when he was, rev- he was a revolution. You have, what do you say on blackish? It's uh, black bobcats. He, they were adjacent. He was a bobcat. <laughs> <laughs> They're. Their uniforms were much more conducive with the California Salisbury lifestyle. Um, But uh, he's, you know, recently passed away, but he was a very interesting guy. But he, you know, wanted to have a, you know, a kid whose name felt, you know, Afrocentric and was a, you know, it's it's interesting because you, I did a whole episode about this and it was something that I find out so many things like the Laquandas and Tatianas and and Sequinicas and all that. That was an attempt, and people often make fun of those names, I'm being, I being one of them. But what I actually found out was that was an attempt during a time when, when you know, blacks were looking for a national sort of point of view for themselves to say, we're not a part of Africa. You know what I'm saying? That, has been, that part of our culture has been taken, but we're also not a part of necessarily a, a fully accepted part of this community. How do we form things that feel like they are part of what you know, African-American nationalism, you know, in this country is. And those names, when I started hearing that, I was like, I would never make fun on another one of those names because it was a direct attempt at trying to liberate, you know, and trying to find a sense of self within a place that by the nature of Jim Crow itself was not really meant for us to have a sense of self. So I, you know, those moments like Juneteenth for me even was like, I used to like, you know, Juneteenth, ha ha. But then I realized that as much as I love hot dogs and fireworks, how can, you know, how could July 4th, 1776 be Independence Day when everyone wasn't free? You know, and it took me sort of getting behind the curtain, pulling that back and actually explaining what my revelatory moment was to the world in my writing. And that was something I was really happy that that show allowed me to do. And I tried to do the same thing in Black AF. So only because A, you've spoken a lot about this before and B, because I can't imagine it didn't majorly shape the person who you are today. I want to ask you, I mean, you've said there was quite a bit of trauma, is the word you've used, within your childhood, starting mm-hmm. very young. I mean, stuff that, you know, losing a, a brother, at a, a younger brother mm-hmm. at a young age, experiencing physical abuse from your, I believe, your father. Uh, and then the most kind of mind-blowing for me to think about is when, I guess, at about six, you know, you see your father kind of come mm-hmm. in without being invited and and your mom shot him. And that was something that 
he survived, but I mean, that's got to have a big effect on a, on a kid, especially at that young of an age. So I just, I, I, hope, <laughs> I hope it's not too personal a question, but I'm just curious how these things, how you think they impacted the person that you are. I mean, because therapy and, you know, and sort of like actual like interpersonal dealings with our emotions is not really a big part of our community because as a community, we've just been taught sort of you go on, you know what I'm saying? Go to church, go take a bath, go take a nap. You know what I'm saying? You go on because you, that's not, hasn't been, I, I really for the longest and wasn't until very recently felt like it didn't have an effect on me. You know, I felt like it was just, you know, part of what it was because I knew so many other people who had maybe not those specific things, but other, you know, you know, it's generational trauma. You know what I'm saying? It's generational trauma that goes back and back and back. And sometimes they become your stripes. You know what I'm saying? So until very recently when I actually had some financial moments in my life that gave me a little bit of time to introspect in a different way, I did not think that they had an effect. I mean, just to clear this so I'm clear. My dad never physically abused me. He was physically abusive to my mom. And so it wasn't, you know, he it was, you know, a more of a, a thing with him. But, you know, I, I did not think that those things had an effect on me. You know, I felt like, um, you know, it's just you do what you do and, you you know, you keep it, keep it moving. But I, you know, in recent times, I've seen that it's had an effect on a lot of things from my marriage. You know, I'm saying that, you know, we're going through a divorce and we're seeing where things we went through things to my interpersonal dealings. But I also felt like in some aspects it gave me. There were a lot of there's a lot of beauty that comes from tragedy sometimes, you know, and comedy in particular is a an offshoot of tragedy. And, you know, I think we saw that in Dave Chappelle, you know, and brilliant as he is, as a comedian can be, you know, went and probably said four jokes, you know, what I'm saying, but it wasn't about that. It was seeing that a person who really knows how to metabolize, you know, and and thusly reverbalize that what comes out of his body into something that is a a moment. We saw it with Richard Pryor. Like it's it's it was one of the most powerful moments that I've seen, you know, during this whole thing. And I feel like that's sort of what we're taught, you know, any sort of marginalized group or, or group who's going through, you know, things and you're kinda you just have to keep going. You take that and you 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 know, you take your lemons and make lemonade. And I feel like it has definitely formed and, and been a part of my comedy. So for people who grew up with you they that you know, maybe we didn't know that these things were going on, but they just were your friend. How would they remember the the kid, Kenya Barris? Were you writing a lot and doing things like that even then? Were you consuming a lot of television or other things like that? I mean, I'm curious I, what I yeah. was. TV was my babysitter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying my mom worked a lot. You know what I'm saying? TV was my babysitter. Um, inappropriate television. You know what I'm saying it wasn't as inappropriate it could be now. But like, you know, I remember watching SNL. You know, I remember uh, seeing, you know, raw. I remember seeing old tapes of live in concert. I mean, remember listening to that nigga's crazy. And I remember, you know, but at the same time, I'd listen to Bob Newhart's button down mine. I'd listen to Carlin. I'd listen to whatever. But I, you know, Saturday Night Live was a thing I would stay. I was way up way too late watching it way too early, but, um, it, it, I got it. I started getting it at an early age and it became my sedative. You know what I'm saying? It was my opiate, opiate and it really got me through. And, you know, I also was a big comic book head. You know, I read all the, you know, I was a Marvel guy, but you know what I'm saying? And I, so when all those movies started coming out, I was most excited for X-Men, which I really feel like Fox started off well and just let it go down. I feel like, how, how did Avengers read X-Men? 
The X-Men was so much more exciting. But, um, you know, I was definitely a part of that. I also was a kid who I had asthma at a young age, so I wasn't in outside as much as I, you know, should have been. But once I got out, I really fucking got out, you know. Um, You're a good athlete in uh, in middle school, right? I was a good athlete. I was, uh, I was also in, the, in and out the streets, you know what I'm saying? I, you know, once I sort of, I kind of had that, you know, caged, caged animal out, you know, and, um, but my mom had seen my brothers, you know, in and out of trouble and was ma- made sure that my path was going to be a little bit different. Um, I butted heads against her, but she she pushed hard. You know, another thing people people tend to ask you, you know, that they, they look at your work and they talk about race first. But there's class. I mean, class is as, as much a, a conversation yeah. there, I think. And and for you guys, there was a very it's it's fascinating reading about you to learn that there was sort of a before and after moment. And it again involves your dad. I wonder if you can share just what I'm sure it's, I'm sure it surprised him as much as anybody, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, did you set this up? No, um, he, my, my dad was a boiler boiler operator at assembly line and boiler operator at, at General Motors. And that's the guy who sort of he was in charge for like mixing the chemical that makes the paint stick to the cars. You know what I'm saying? Makes it. And you know, a truck was was coming in and he was back, you know, told her to back in and whatever was labeled on the outside of the truck was not what was actually inside the truck. It had been mis misfilled. He put it in a big, you know, toxic cloud came up. It was, it was well documented at Van Nuys. A lot of people died. He lost a lung. We got a considerable settlement, especially for us. I mean, now it wouldn't be. But at that time, it was a considerable settlement. Um, he and my mom had been married for 20 years, so she got half of it. He was not happy about that. <laughs> and um, my mom... You know, took what she could, and you know what I'm saying, and, and you know, whatever parts we got. And she, my mom was also very industrious and, you know, self-starter. And she went and started a life different for us than we have, would have necessarily been the original plight. And for people in the L.A. area, just to think about it in their own minds, I guess it was going from Englewood to Hancock Park. That's a big move. And Hancock Park adjacent. <laughs> yeah, but it, that's... That's it's going ashy to classy, as, as Biggie would say. You know what I'm saying? In, in, in some aspects, but I, um, you know, I really, you know, attribute a lot of that to my mom. You know, being really high on education and high on us having. I, I think that we were the first generation, mid forties, like where I was. We were the first generation to have really benefit from the civil rights movement. Like for us, it was no longer like I might go to, I want to go to class. I might. It was like you have to go to school. You know what I'm saying? This is why, why we marched. This is why we did this. So it was, you know, my brothers and sisters went to USC, you know, like, um, you know, it was like you have to. It was not an option. So my mom really made sure that education was going to be a big part of our lives. Um, and I think that that is a key to changing anyone's place. And so you go off to Clark Atlanta University. I know you ended up with a degree in radio, TV and film. When you graduated and headed back to L.A., at that moment, what did you imagine the rest of your life professionally and maybe personally, but what did you think it was going to look like? Not like this. <laughs> <laughs> not, not like this. I, um, Tyra was my best friend. We called ourselves cousins. So we grew up since we were babies. This Tyra um, Banks. Yeah. yeah Tyra, Tyra Banks. Was my, and, and, you know, I moved in with her. She was actually living in a Hollywood Hills, you know, pretty nice house. You know what I'm saying? And we moved <laughs> in. And I, so it was a little bit not surrealistic for me. But, you know, we had, we were young and we had our falling outs and I, she kicked me out the house one day and <laughs> I had to go do it. But I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I actually thought I might get into politics. I was work, working for city council for this councilman, Nate Holden, 
my mom had, you know, knew him and got got me the job. And, I, you know, they had wanted me to start talking about low level, uh, you know, running for a low level office and things like that. So I thought that that might be a thing. I did publicity for a while. I did um, music publishing for a while. But it was I always knew that I wanted to do something with comedy. I always really, really enjoyed writing. Our lady Felicia Henderson got me a job on Sister, Sister. Sister. Steve Stark helped me get into the comedy Paramount Comedy Writers Program for, for short lasted, but you know, got it. I got a taste of it, and I knew that that was. I wanted to be a director maybe when I was in college because I was Doctor um, Eaglethorpe, who was Spike Lee's mentor. You know, what I'm saying Eichelberg, but became mine. But I knew that directing you needed money to put up, a, you know, and writing all I needed was a laptop. You know, and, and being a PA on a show, I was on Sister Sister. You, I one day the budget came across my desk, and I looked. I, I tell every PA, look at everything that comes your way. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And I looked at the budget and I saw the writers thing, and I was like, I took a pencil out, and I was like, this guy is gonna make this week more than I'm gonna make this more than I'm gonna make this entire year with taking extra mileage and and doing and <laughs> taking home waters home or whatever the case may be. And I was like, this is what I want. So I, you know, that was sort of my. My way, and I also I felt like with television, you really get to be the more of the boss as the writer. Or in film, you know, saying you're kind of a yeah. little bit more of a tool. So you know, it was it was a, a good entry point into that that place for me. I I had read, I think it was in a New Yorker profile of you, a little bit about how you came to know Felicia D. Henderson, who I think at the time was writing for Moesha, and and you just mentioned the Paramount Writers Program, which was sort of the way it was described in that article was that it was a diversity initiative. Can you talk about, I mean, the way you came to meet Felicia Henderson was out of a little bit of frustration at the landscape of TV, right? Yeah, we had, we were doing, I think it was called Black Noir or something like that, but it was about (laughs) the notion of what was becoming almost starting to be viewed by mainstream, once again, quote signs being used, writers, (laughs) um, as like a chitlin circuit sort of, right. You know what I'm saying? Thing, you know, the, you had that uptick of, of netlets, that was the UPN, the WBs, the things like that, that were coming about. And they knew that they needed eyes, you know, and because black people would show up and support each other, they would put on, they were putting on black shows. And so you had these black shows that were coming on, but the, the plan, and Felicia ended up, who's a, a, a great academic, she ended up writing a thesis on this, is that this was the plan that they used. Fox was doing the same thing. They would, you know, get these out, put these African American shows on, get eyes to them, seemingly creating showrunners, right? Seemingly, and creating you know careers, and they would, did give a lot of people opportunities. But then once they started getting enough eyes, and they got advertisers to sort of say they have enough eyes to get ad dollars, they slowly would start m- moving in a Dawson's Creek. They slowly would start moving in a Married with Children. They so you know the idea they would push us out, you know, because now they had eyes, and it was a a systematic form formulated way of once again building something up on the back the, the the backs of black labor, you know what I'm saying? And of our of our sort of places our, our gift to this country, which was that time was was comedy, you know what I'm saying, and a sort of that comedic voice. And then once we got there they'd move us out. You know, there now to be fair, there are quite a few voices that still remain from there, but a lot faded away. Because it was, you know, the the notions and the rhythms and the, uh, the how sort of quote unquote mainstream comedy was was written and produced. Those weren't the same rhythms that we, you know, we were writing under. And so they would not 
well, you know, they would put us in rooms with when, when mainstream shows would happen. They'd say, well, you don't necessarily get how this goes. Or they'd make us diversity writers, which became an initiative. And I was a diversity writer. And it was the worst moment you ever could have in a situation where someone looks at you and they feel like you don't really deserve to be there. And they're just waiting for your year to be up. And, you know, and then when you try to go get recommendations, they shit on you. You know, so it it was a really difficult thing to, to do. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that when you originally envisioned Blackish, which there's a lot in between those moments, which I'm going to ask you about, but I mean, wasn't it originally set as a writer who was, yeah. I, I think I'd read something about being maybe a diversity yeah. hire for a TV writer's room. That's exactly right. It was literally true, 100% my story. You know what I'm saying? Where mm-hmm. I, you know, I had, there's a moment in the Blackish pilot when they asked, like, Trey, how would a, would a black guy say good morning? You know what I'm saying? And I, that question absolutely was asked to me, like 100%. And it sounds like I couldn't write. And I was like, I'm probably pretty much like that. But like, you know, <laughs> let me check in at the next meeting and just make sure there's a, a, a you know. We no can, changes. Yeah. Um, but like that question was absolutely asked to me. And it, it's asked without malice, you know. And I, I saw it then as being asked without malice. I see it now in some, with some success a little bit differently. I felt like it might be asked, although maybe not without malice, without a lot of care, you know? Um, and I think that that is one of the things that we're seeing now in terms of what's happening is that people are saying like, I didn't mean anything by it, but I didn't take a lot of time to think it through. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And although that's not malice, it's the cousin of malice, you know, um, because the effect often is the same. And I guess that this was a, a consistent frustration for the the years that you were a writer on TV prior to Blackish coming along or before you created Blackish, because um, Felicia Henderson, so you interviewed her for that documentary, it looks like around 1998. Blackish was sold in 2013. So there's 15 years there where you're making your name in TV as a writer. I know that with Felicia, I don't know if it was your first uh, writing job on TV, but you go to work then having met her, you go to work for her on the only black family family drama on TV at that time, which was Soul Food. And that's in 2000. And then there were a lot of different things along the way where you're in a writer's room and then I guess on the side writing your own pilots that you're hoping will will get a life, you know, get, be given an mm-hmm. opportunity. Can you talk about the the grind of that time? Like when when you're in those writers rooms, how does one stand out in terms of getting the chance to to hopefully move up on the food chain? How does were you finding that there in those days you were truly the the only person of color in a room? And then what was happening with your own work, these 18 pilots that you wrote before Blackish that that just didn't end up on the air. It was there. It was interesting because sometimes you know, like if you were working for a black showrunner, oftentimes they would be much more mindful of the staff. So it would be a you know integrated staff, but there still weren't a lot of black writers. So it was really I don't think I ever worked for an all black staff. You know what I'm saying? I think that it was still very you know integrated, but it was more. But then there was times when you'd be on a white show, and I definitely had been the only black writer on a couple of those versions. I think that the notion. That you, I constantly sort of for myself, and and I do think that in some aspects it might have had something to do with some parts to do with, you know, me having some of the success that I've had, is that I knew that it was really important for me to sell a pilot every year, you know, in a different way than just I wanted to sell a pilot. I wanted to make sure that 
you weren't going to marginalize me and say I'm just on this black show, that the executives at the network, at the studio, you know, we're going to hear my name. We're going to see me come pitch. We're going to actually see me as a salesman. We're going to see the things that I could create and do on my own outside of these shows that I think that they were marginalized. I worked on a show called The Game, um, and it when it, it moved from CW to BT, and when it did, it broke cable records, like shattered them. And I, I remember going into staffing meetings and network staffing meetings with executives, and they were like, what show are you on? And I'm like, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on The Game, and I kind of said it proudly the first couple of times. And they were like, excuse me, which show is that? And I'm like, you know, the show that just broke every cable record ever, you know, and it was I'm like, this is your job, you know, to know these things. And if it had been, you know, Girls, which got, you know, marginally, you know, which was a great show, but did not get, you know, got 600,000 people a week watching it, you would know, you would know that show, you know, but here's a show that shattered black, white, all the things that people didn't know that show. So it was, I started seeing those moments. And I started realizing, you know, I had a really, really good friend who's still my good friend. But, you know, we were talking about the ratings on the game. And he said, yeah, but those are all black people watching. Right. And he didn't mean it fucked up at all. You know, he's my boy. He meant it probably the way that's how people were looking at it. And I'm like, yeah, those might be a lot of black people watching, but they spend this. They spend money. Those are eyes. Those are this. But it was I understood that that was how. It was being looked at. So it was really important to me every year to sell a pilot, to be in those conversations, to keep being, you know, every year I'm here again, guys, a solo pilot to let it get to different levels of whether it be, you know, getting met, getting uh, shot, getting close to getting picked up, getting, you know, I, I kept it going. And it also became, you know, I had a family really young. Um, my wife was in medical school. It also became like a necessary part of my income. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't just like selling pilots because I wanted to. I needed that X amount of money, you know what I'm saying? And I was really, really also interested in, you know, you, the, every year you sell a pilot, you get a little bit more, you know, it's like building up a contract and you're trying to build up to a number where you have some respect. It's a respectable number. And I, I, I understood that game and playing that game and it became something that was really educational for me. Do you think looking back, you know, if you can be as objective as possible, were any of those pilots that didn't get picked up, or I know a few of them got got even as far as being produced, I think three of them, but mm-hmm. they didn't go on the air. Were any of them on a par in your own mind with what you eventually did with Blackish? Yes. Yes. So that uh-huh. that that must have been a, a yes. frustration. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, a few stick out. Um a few were actually done over in a different way by other people. And I'm like, that was my show. I think that Blackish was special though. I think because it was even though the shows, other shows, I feel like might have been important in terms of my writing, it was Blackish was very personal. It was the moment that I stopped. I kind of had my fuck it moment, and I was like, I'm not going to try and appeal to anyone else. I'm going to tell my story. That actually, I'm not going to pull any punches. And I felt like I knew my story best. And and you learn as a young writer, most of those first things that you do are your stories. You know what I'm saying? Whether you're putting yourself on a you know, on a ranch or on a, you know, a space camp, you know what I'm saying? You're basically telling a version of your story. And I decided to really tell my story and not worry about, you know, what happens. I just was telling someone yesterday, like there's, there's never in the history of television been a pilot that's picked up because you took every note. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They've never said, you know what, God, this pilot really isn't good, but he took every note. So we're going to pick it up. Right. And so with, with that being said, and knowing that I tell young, young writers, like, be respectful of the process, be collaborative, be someone that they want to work with, but also understand, be true to your vision. 
because whether it's, when it goes or doesn't go, at least you can say I kind of stuck to my guns. So Blackish, when it, when the pilot was put out there, became a I know a big uh, focus of a of a bidding war between a lot of different places. And I think in your mind, you were originally thinking it would be good for FX, right? Why did it then end up at ABC, a, a network which comes with its whole different set of constrictions and requirements that obviously would be an issue uh, in some ways later. But why? Wh- how did it end up at ABC instead? Well, I love Langroff. I still to this day love Langroff. I think he's a genius. I think he's one of the best network executives going in terms of like really taking chances and letting creators be creators. I also knew that there was a scope to what he did. You know what I'm saying? And I felt like in order for this to really, really make the dent that I wanted it to make and open the doors that I wanted to open, which a lot of those moments I learned from seeing what Shonda had done with her shows, because she opened so many doors for so many of us. I wanted to make sure that the scope and the broadband you know, capability of where I was going was enough to really actually hit a real number, you know what I'm saying? And be a, a show that people say, oh. Um, and then, you know, Paul, who bought, who was the president, Paul Lee was the president at ABC, um, the way he courted the show, you know, was amazing. You know, we were very close to going to NBC because Lawrence Fishburne, who was the reason the show was picked up, had, was doing a show, I think Hannibal, at, at NBC. They had a good relationship there. But the way Paul Lee courted the show and the, what, what ABC had been doing with family sitcom for a while was really interesting. And I had this dream. I was like, wow, what if we could come on after Modern Family? Like, what, just what if that was the opportunity? And that happened. We got scheduled after Modern Family. And it was... It only happened, I think, one time, but I remember making a bet with the studios that, the, that our original number, our, our premiere number, I was like, it's going to beat Modern Family. And it never happened again, but it did. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think the aggregate yeah. number, because it yeah. was, you know, black people show up for each other. And that, and because we we're on that network, a lot of other people showed up for us as well. It's just interesting for, I, I didn't know this, and I think people might find it interesting. Most of the time, about more than three quarters of your audience of blackish was white, right? Yep, absolutely. And it was, and we would get, I think a lot of, you know, we, it was, it did not start off the first season like that, you right. know, and, but shortly into the first season, um, the juggernaut of empire came up and I think it was a scheduling snafu and I, I fought against it. You know what I'm saying? I remember calling everybody and making the calls like, please don't do this. They took us off um, because Fox was doing baseball, you know, and they didn't want to put this. So they took us off. And they scheduled us back on like three weeks after baseball had went off. And but, but during that three weeks, Empire came on. And Empire, we had not seen, I still don't think to this day to network television, a show that grew every week for like seven weeks straight. Monster numbers. It was like monster number, monster number, monster. Like it was like we had not seen that. And what happened is there's only... You know, so much, you know, if it's a movie, you say there's only so much box office. You know what I'm saying? There's only so, you know, Empire at one point, I heard a, a crazy stat that 25% of African-Americans in the country at one point were watching it live. You know what I'm saying? Wow. That wow. it was, because there's not that many of us, you know what I'm saying, here. Yeah. And that like a quarter where, you know, at some point we're tuned in, it was a juggernaut. You know what I'm saying? And so... A lot of our black viewers, we lost during that period and we never got them back. We did get them back in DV, uh, oh, uh, what's it, SVOD yeah, yeah. and th- uh, things like that online, but we, we lost them. So, you know, a lot of our audience over, our overnight audience was, you know, a, 
portion of the modern family audience. And that was, mm. you know, something that was a blessing and a curse. And some, in some aspects, people felt like, well, that's not a real, you know, I'm saying black show or whatever. But then people like, you know, organizations, which I always have my heart to, like the NAACP, we swept and we've swept six years straight. And I don't think a show has ever done that. And we were just honored by our, our community in a way that we had, could not, I could not imagine. And then we started to get, you know, Golden Globe nominations and Emmy nominations. And we won a Peabody, we won an AFI, Tracy won the Golden Globe. We won, you know, we won basically all the words except an Emmy. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I guess though it begs the question because you, you mentioned that, you know, coming up as a writer, you're, that you were, some of these shows were clearly in your mind. And I think in a lot of other people's, all right, this is a black show. This is a white show in your mind. When you're writing blackish, who was your audience that you were imagining? I wrote it for this. I'm going to be, give you the honest answer. Yeah. I, I wrote it for, for my people. You know what I'm saying mm-hmm. for my community, mm-hmm. but I wanted everybody to watch it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying I'm a populist. And I don't run from the notion that, you know, in order for us to really make change, you know what I'm saying, we need big box office. And the only way that you get big box office is that you have a multicultural, vast group that sort of samples your your programming. But I feel like and the thing that I've learned, music was a really big part of this, you know what I'm saying? But also we all we learn as writers and telling our stories, the specific speaks to the universal, you know, but like you can look at music. I knew kids from Idaho who had never seen a Crip before and they heard Snoop and saw Snoop. They're like, I don't know what a Crip looks like or sounds like, but this guy seems real, you know? (laughs) And so I think that there was a honesty and a specificity of the blackish that spoke to a lot of different people. And that really helped to open up that, that world in a different way. So when it went on the air after a few things that now seem kind of laughable, I don't know if they were funny to you at the time, but I heard they'd, at one point asked you to call it the Johnsons or urban family, um, yeah. <laughs> stuff like this, just like in crazy, crazy stuff. Um, and obviously changing the setting from a TV writer's room to what it became at an advertising agency. I, I guess prior to all the success, which started pretty quickly with Blackish once it was on the air, if your career, let's say that had not been ordered to series and you were back to where you were before Blackish. Could you have been happy and content and or did you feel like in your in your career you were not realizing your potential? You were not fully, you know, you were not as successful as you'd want it to be prior to Blackish. How was how basically let's imagine oh, a universe wow. where it didn't happen. I've what never would, been a, I've never been asked that question. I was becoming really frustrated. You know, um I felt like I had started I was getting in rooms with showrunners that I didn't think were, I mean, if I'm going to be honest, I didn't think they were talented. I was working on projects with people that I felt like were, you know, seemingly doing much better than me that didn't have, you know, a tenth of the, of the talent that I had. I I saw a lot of, you know, my friends, you know, really good friends of mine, um, Alex Barno and Mark Farrick, sold Mr. Sunshine. Um, and it was a big show with Matthew Perry and I came and worked on it and they couldn't hire me. They said the studio wouldn't, didn't approve me to get hired. And I was like, this is, I I was, I was getting really frustrated. So I, if I'm being honest, I, I, I don't know what I would have done. You know what I'm saying? I don't know that I would have continued 
you know, especially having a family, or maybe I would have just, you know, staffed and been happy being staffing. The the television landscape changed. There were less opportunities on quote unquote black shows. I wasn't getting the the look on on mainstream shows. I don't know, you know, I would have I'm a hustler, so I would have figured something out, but I don't know that what my life would have been, honestly. Did it give you any sort of a cushion? Because I know I've I've glossed over this accidentally, but I mean, you mentioned Tyra Banks earlier, and then I think an early thing in your in your career was that you and she sold America's Next Top Model, which became mm-hmm. a big thing. This was early 2000s. Did that at least take some pressure off you financially, or does that go? Do you go through that pretty quickly when you've got six kids? No, it it took some pressure off off me. You know, what I'm saying it gave me the power of no, which I think also helped to really change my career because I started being able to say no to, you know, opportunities that might have been, you know, for a lot of black writers been like, oh, my God, I was able to kind of say no and be a little bit more conscious. Um, I mean, I probably could have I could have lived off of it, you know, what I'm saying, but it wasn't it wouldn't have been fulfilling. And I might have went back to top model, you know, what I'm saying Mm -hmm. had, you know, and and really maybe went the reality route or maybe went into politics in some aspects. Um, But I feel like yeah, top model was a huge success. But once again, I think the thing with Top Model was it wasn't, even though I created it, co-created it, it wasn't mine. You know, it wasn't something that I, my voice, it wasn't, you know, the, the nature of reality is reverse engineering storytelling. You know what I'm saying? Which is something I'm really glad that I learned a story, a skill I learned, but it wasn't the same thing as, as actually creating story. You know, it was creating story in some time in a, in a little bit of some time of a duplicitous way, you know. Um, so I, you know, it was a... It was an interesting diversion, but I really feel like, I mean, I've always wanted to be a teacher. My wife at that time had, you know, had become a doctor, so she was making a good living. I think that that might have been something I would have went into. You know what I'm saying? I've always liked to, to sort of explain to think, people the things that I've learned in a way that, and show them from a way that not a lot of people got to see, you know. Um, so I might have done something like that, but I, I've never been asked that question. But, you know, it's it's a interesting uh, you know, alternative history that I really would wonder what would happen. <laughs> well, in a way, of course, I think you you still got to be a teacher with a lot of these episodes that you you did on uh, Blackish or with Blackish, and you know the the ones that always get talked about. But I I think for good reason. Season two, episode sixteen, Hope about police brutality, which you've said you had quote never been that afraid to turn a script in. Close quote. Season four, episode one, Juneteenth, which we've talked a little bit about. But I think one of the big moments in your life and career, it seems, is that you got to really, through this work, get the attention of somebody who sounds like you've always really admired and who now is your biggest fan and who we've had on this podcast, and that is Mr. Norman Lear. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, people like to re- sort of reflexively say, oh, Blackish is the the modern day Cosby show. But I think the way you've talked about it, it's actually more the the modern day good times. And that was a show of his that you were very familiar with. Right. So I guess Uh, just getting, can you talk about Norman Lear and the role he's, you know, come into your life and you even had him in your writer's room at one point. Yeah. He played much more of a a role in my life than Bill Cosby did. You know what I'm saying? I think the Cosby show was amazing. I'm, you know, I know that Bill Cosby has, is done horrendous things. You know what I'm saying? And, it's sort of hard sometimes because I see that like they've taken off the air, you know, and, and things like that. But the show, I, I, I argue sometimes because I feel like where do we separate art from artists, you know? And, and if we're not going to do that, do we go close the museums? 
because museums are full of beautiful things and made by ugly people, you know. Um, but that show was, it changed a lot. You know what I'm saying? It changed a lot of things for a lot of people. But the thing about the Cosby show was it could have basically been a white family. You know what I'm saying? And that was what Bill felt like he needed to do for that time. But that was the first time that I saw like my white friends want to have the same dad that I wanted to have. I was like, you want Cliff to be your dad too? Oh my God. So it was, it was a great thing for a lot of, you know, people and brought us, brought us closer and it gave, you know, it was aspirational for a lot of little black kids and white kids. But Norman Lear, I would say this, you know, black is just, is, is all in the family meets good times. You know what I'm saying? In some aspects, just really being honest and true to, Things and saying things that were sort of a part of the zeitgeist that people may not hear on television, you know, and um, Norman continued to every, you know, I just went to the, God, I love Norman, I need to call him. I just went to the live taping, you know, last year, I think, of All in the Family um, that he and Kimmel did, and it was, it was, it was shocking. You know, I leaned over to Norman, I was like, they, you could have changed some words and written this yesterday. And it's amazing that that's how little, how, how how little we've grown in terms of television writing. You know what I'm saying? It was like all of a sudden, this was a guy who had multiple, multiple hits. You know what I'm saying? It's legitimate, solid, monster shows on television. And then all of a sudden, because selling soap and the bureaucracy of television became such a thing, we all of a sudden weren't talking about things anymore. And I love Marta Kaufman. She's a, you know, has become a, a you know, we become friendly and she's become someone I really admire. And I saw recently and it really made me love her even more. She's regretted, you know, the lack of diversity on Friends, you know what I'm saying? And which is one of the greatest shows ever. But I remember looking at Friends and saying, what part of New York is this exactly? <laughs> like, <laughs> there is not even a Puerto Rican waitress. Like, you know, the, the notion of, but that was not something that she wasn't doing purposely, but you didn't have to seek that out. You didn't have to seek out diversity. So when we did Blackish, it was, more in the tradition of Norman Lear, like it wasn't, Cosby Show was a family that happened to be black. You know what I'm saying? Blackish was a family that was absolutely black. And every week it was about, you know, because you live in your blackness. You live in your, if you're Irish, you live in your Irishness. If you're Italian, you live in your Italianness. And so the idea of like not having a family that lives in their skin and lives in their being and lives in that place every day, it was weird to me. So I was like, let's let's have a, sh a show about that, but also let's have a show that reflects that there are strides being made. You know what I'm saying? My wife's a doctor. I'm a writer. This, you know, Rainbow on television's a doctor, and at, Dre's an ad executive. There are strides being made, and I and the little kids that I have and that I see around my kids don't look like the little black kids I remember growing up. And I was like, let's talk about even though you're taught to give your kids more than you had, what do you lose in the process? And that was sort of the conceit and the spine of what Blackish was. You mentioned Dave Chappelle earlier, and I wanted to ask you if you ever could relate to something that he's talked about where he, you know, achieved this great success with Chappelle show and then walked away from a lot of money to keep doing it because in his mind, white audiences were not hearing the jokes. They were sort of he might do jokes uh, about the black community that he wanted people to laugh with white people to laugh with, but they were laughing at, you know what I mean? More than mm -hmm. it seemed like that was the issue that caused him a lot of concern. And I guess he's gotten past it because we're now seeing him him back at work, thank goodness. But uh, was that ever something that you had to think about where it's like, because you're playing to both audiences with Blackish, it's not a, it's not a put in a box show where this is a black show, yeah. or this is a white show. 
did you ever worry about, you know, I guess the phrase, I'm, I'm trying to remember what people say. It's like code switching when they talk about, you no, know. And, not, not one day. Honestly, yeah. not, not one day on that show. I think Good. that and we, I learned really early on because I'd had so many failed pilots that this show was probably not going to make it. And so I was like, if it's not going to make it, because shows don't make it, it's not going to make it on my terms. And Vicky Dummer, who I love, who's the head of, you know, uh, or head of ABC Curve right now, um, and is just an amazing executive. We'd get notes, and I had a, a moment I started, and I tease her about it today, when, whenever they push back with notes, because it was such a different show than they'd done, they had done before, I would say, well, you know, culturally speaking, I don't think, and they'd be like, yeah, you're, you're right, culturally speaking, you probably. <laughs> and it became sort of like my, a little dog whistle to the idea of like, guys, let me do this. You know what I'm saying? I can... It's going to work or not. And if you want to cancel it, cancel it. But it was, they ended up letting me have a lot of freedom on that show. And I still look back, you know, at Lemons and Juneteenth and, and Hope and the N-Word. And just like some of these episodes that we were able to do, I'm like, how the fuck did we get, excuse me, how did we get away with doing this? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it was because it was such a unique show at that time that I think a lot of things actually became derivative of in some aspects in a good way. It was such a unique show at that time, and ABC had stumbled into something, and we kind of all realized it at the same time, that they really gave us a lot of freedom, you know, and they were very, very, some of the, you know, best executives in terms of allowing that show to have a, have its voice that I, I think I could have worked with. And I know just, just for people wondering who the executives, you know, the main players were, it was, as you mentioned, Paul Lee, until I think it was maybe season two when Channing Dungey comes in and becomes the first Black season female three. season three uh-huh. yeah first black female uh to lead a network did that in any way impact what you were doing or it was just a just a thing that was going on in the background no channing channing was always very supportive you know what i'm saying um she had the unfortunate job of having to come talk to me about an episode that i didn't get to air yes. you know and she did it with the most humanity i've ever seen an executive you know, she had tears in her eyes when she talked to me her and vicky dummer um about the episode you know, she was very always uh, an advocate. Paul had set the show up in such a. Channing might have actually came season four, but um, but she was she was Channing was such an advocate of the show. You know, the studio um, who was ran ran, ran um at the time at the time by Patrick Moran um and Amy Harper was our studio executive was beyond supportive. You know, what I'm saying they argued and they were scared because they're the bank. You know, what I'm saying, but we were we were cr- getting a lot of critical acclaim even from shows that high higher ratings from us. And critical acclaim can guard, give you a lot of guards, you know, and put some guardrails up for us. And so we knew that we were probably going to be around. We had Tracy, Anthony, and Lawrence, who were in those amazing kids. And we we, we felt like, you know, sometimes things like that happen, and, you know, and you're, you're in a great place. So we had a really supportive studio. You know, Bob Iger, who I think, you know, I, I joke that he was, made in a CEO factory. Like he was high on Bob Iger reading for the role of CEO because he's such the perfect CEO, like could not have been more supportive and understanding and behind the show, the personal letters, the personal calls, personal notes, the stop buys, you know, the, the, you know, the heralding the show in the way that he did. So from top, from the very top to the bottom, the only person that I never really gelled with at that place was Ben Sherwood, you know, and that's the one of the only people that I really, to this day, feel like I don't care about that guy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like he, he he came off. He comes off to me as he was he was a bully. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? He was a bully who got in the news and then somehow stumbled his way up in white man world into a, a position that he was not in any way suited for. So. And 
you know, I'm certainly not going to harp on this point because I know we're um, going to come to in, in just one moment to Black AF, which is whole whole new chapter of your life. But I think to to discuss how one led to the other, I just have to at least ask you if you can share. You know, people know the the broad outlines that there was this episode that you just referred to, please baby please, which ABC financed. It gets made. It's so there was clearly at one point an intention to do something with it. It wouldn't have gotten that far in the process. But what what was it about and why didn't it from your perspective, why didn't it go on the air and cause the and why did it cause what it seems like was the final straw in your relationship with with that network? Um, I think we had creative differences. I can say that. You know I'm saying I think there were creative differences. I think it was a really different time in society. You know what I'm saying um, I think there was a lot of things happening within the company. I think that we, you know, in the best way possible, <laughs> decided to, you know, the the changes that needed to be what need to be made for it in order for it to be on air was not something that we could come to, you know, an agreement on, and we decided to part ways in in the most in the most amicable way humanly possible, you know, and, you know, I think the things behind it, like there is no version of Bob Iger being a racist at all, you know what I'm saying, he's the most, you know, could not be further from that in terms of my dealings with him. There was no, you know, I, I had no negative feelings about ABC as a studio, you know, at all. I still remain very, very close and still have a really good relationship with most of those people there. Um, it just was, you know, the times and I, which actually speak to the times we're in now, just so yeah. people know what we're talking about here. I mean, it was basically, and, and please correct me if this is wrong, but my understanding was an episode that was going to sort of be a, a bedtime story that was going to be getting into what our our times are actually uh, like, which at that moment there was going to be a little bit about Trump and Charlottesville and NFL kneeling and all of that. And so at a time when ABC was, or Disney was was in the process of trying to acquire Fox, it might have been a thought of theirs or Ben Sherwood or whoever that we can't do this now because this could jeopardize our ability to complete that deal. Do you believe that that was their reason for for primarily their primary reason for preventing that from going on the air? Um, I don't know. <laughs> when did you become shy? I thought you. Were- <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like you know. I I, I still have hope. I talked to Dana Walden and Bob Iger and Peter Rice. I have still have hope that that show, that episode is actually going to air. Oh, you know that would be it's amazing. Close, it's closer to airing now than it ever has been. Um, and I think that it would be something that I would love to really show in a way that we haven't shown before. You know what I'm saying? What, what it meant you know, to me and to what I think we were, the message we were trying to convey. That would be amazing. Well, okay. So you get, you you now, it's, it's August 2018 and you are a free agent. And you get offers from at least two pretty great places, Warner Brothers, which I think offers more, and, and then Netflix. Why did you go to how, Netflix? How did, how, how did you know that? Well, because I've uh, you know done my homework. Come on. <laughs> where's, that, where's that listed at? <laughs> is, is, is it wrong? Um, I, I don't know, but that, that's a very, I've never heard someone mention that back to me. So it's right, interesting right. what you're saying. All right. All right. All right. Well, so why, why'd you go with Netflix and what is the, it's gotta be a pretty different experience to go from having to make 24 episodes, factoring in commercials, factoring in, you know, what you can yeah, say let me and be do. Very clear. If, if, if that was the case, if those places yeah. were the case, the reason that I, I am in love with Peter Roth. 
what I'm yeah. saying? Like, like literally, I, I, I think that he is an old school studio boss, like from a, a, a better year, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he gets it in a, a way that I don't see a lot of, you know, guys getting it. And he is a class act, like the classiest of class act. And I feel like that would have been a very, if that were, were to happen, that would have been a very, 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 very difficult decision for me to make. The only reason that I would have made that decision was because Netflix was it was had would have been a place where I was not going to be developing but making. You know what I'm saying? And I was coming no out pilots. of pilots. No pilots, you know what I'm saying? And I'm coming out of a system where I wouldn't have to go pitch, you know what I'm saying, to networks and through the you know, that I could go actually go make things. And that was would have been the you know, it had been I had been through such I had just done a pilot um with Courtney B. Vance and Felicity um Huffman about a a black uh liberal married to a, a white conservative and they had a show and it was about like literally talking about and it would have been a monster show like seriously like you talk they used to have a thing where they showed fell, fell pilots i we did four reshoots on it i knew it was going it didn't i would have been beyond frustrated with the process of things not going and i'd done pilot, a few other pilots and things that went and just and so the notion of I think that frustration would have been the only thing that if I would have been the case that would have kept me from not from Peter Roth or Warner Brothers because that's still my family. But it was to the opportunity to go make things, which Netflix absolutely has stayed true to their word, to go make things into it's not really notes, it's thoughts that they give. You know, and the and the the interesting thing about when you get thoughts and don't, you know, not notes is okay, go do what you want to do, but you know. We'll cancel you first season. They're a big first season canceling yeah, place. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so you can literally author your own demise. So it's scary. But, you know, you also can go make the big, big catch, you know, in the, in the big game. So it was they have lived very much up to their word, word in a way that I cannot speak more highly of. And it's been a, a great situation. But I do love Peter Roth. I do love what they do. And I do feel like it. I miss network television sometime. I just recently... You know, they showed hope in, in Juneteenth, you know, during the protests. And I was like, the idea of being able to speak on a weekly basis to audiences with the amount of sort of like prescience, like, you know, like we're right here, we're speaking to you about what's going on, topical nature. That's a that's something that I do sort of miss, you know, because there is some time about the bundling thing. You can try and make them, but depending on how quickly you're able to get it out, sometimes it's not as on point as you'd like it to be, especially when you like to talk about things. But I, you know, I, I do enjoy it. So uh, last couple of minutes here, I just want to obviously hone in on this uh, first season of Black AF where did you, is this something you'd always wanted to, uh, a story you'd always wanted to tell, but because of, you know, the sort of network standards and practices and things you couldn't, 100%. you couldn't, yeah. 100%, so this, yeah. Yeah, the, the idea that people criticize me for it being so close to blackish, I'm like, oh, fuck yourself, dude. Like, I would do it. <laughs> I would do it again. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, gr- you know, writers tell their stories and their voices. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Aaron Sorkin's one of my favorite writers. And he, how many times he told a version of the same Aaron Sorkin story? You know what I'm saying? Woody Allen, how many times he turned to, you know, so I, you know, I, I know you're not supposed to say Woody Allen anymore, I guess, but whatever the case <laughs> may be. But, um, you know, the writers that we love, and I'm saying they tell versions of their story. And I feel like this was a version of my story that I think as much shit as I took now, it's like, yeah, every episode was named because of slavery. You know what I'm saying? Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Now, do you understand what I was talking about? Yeah, I did another Juneteenth episode, Twitter. 
critics, critics, do you understand why I did it? You know what I'm saying? Like the notion of like the idea of trying to tell that story is important to tell over and over and over again because it's needs to get hammered into the idea that we are part of this fa- fabric of this country in a way that you're not seeing. Would it have been, because I can, I can hear, you know, what you're saying, and I'm wondering, do you think it might have people, some of the people that gave it a hard time, would they have maybe had a different response if it had dropped last week instead of two months ago? Of course. You know what I'm saying? Everybody has, has something to say. You know what I'm saying? Look, I the show was not perfect. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm... I'm a crappy actor, you know what I'm saying? I got better, but I feel like some of that crappy acting actually helped the role. And a, a, a true actor couldn't have played that role. It would not have been the same show, you know what I'm saying? It wouldn't have been as loud, wouldn't have been as noisy. It would have been, isn't there an actor already playing you on a show? You know, there were, I, everything was thought out. I feel like for the most part, it was, I think, the most talked about comedy maybe in Twitter, on Twitter, period, you know what I'm saying, in terms of the hashtag. I would not do anything different. I feel like I, you know, I am... You know, the critics, you know, I I have never seen, because there's so few black creators, you know what I'm saying, they get to do this. We are often at the mercy of social media and critics because they, we get, our stories don't get viewed in a completely different way. It's, you know, we are the, it's three of us telling a story for, you know, a thousand different archetypes, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, you can only, you know, pick, only so many people are going to get your story. And I feel like, all the people who sort of like, you know, criticize, you know, this or the color or this and didn't know it was based on my family and didn't know my wife was biracial and didn't didn't understand that because of slavery that I'm saying that there's generational trauma that affects our things and talks. And I'm doing another Juneteenth episode because I want Juneteenth to eventually become a national holiday and I want to talk about it as much as I can. I'm talking about criticism, how it's important. The idea of the things and talking about dysfunction, I'm showing it. Uh, you know, that my life has grown from where I started blackish to where it is now, and that that's an important aspirational thing for people to be able to see a different lane. I feel like I definitely, you know, say that I want to, there's been a part of me that wants to go, and I've said this in a few interviews, I want to go start doing a weekly column op-ed called I Got Time Today, where <laughs> I start re- where I start reviewing reviewers, you know what I'm saying? And I start digging into their IGs and looking at their reviews and the the shit that they missed and say, you know, because I feel like our words are powerful and yeah. you know, as a writer, you know what I'm saying? That there's a responsibility that goes to every one of those words. And I feel like, you know, when you jump on and don't see things, I saw something recently in my publicist, it gets mad every time I bring this up, but I'm not, I'm gonna, there were four black critics that had reviewed my show, you know what I'm saying? Uh, did not like the show, which is why I totally am cool with that, but they chose to get together I read and this, have another yeah. roundtable about it. And I'm like, what yeah. the fuck is that, dude? Like, you know what I'm saying? You guys all individually didn't like it. Now you're going to get together and talk about it on Black Tuesday? On Black, you know what I'm saying? Like, this is your contribution to Black Tuesdays. You're going to release this, tearing down a show that has so many different layers that you're not, haven't even looked at because you think that this is your job to once again, you know, this, what are you getting from this, nerd? You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like it, the, the notion of that would never happen with an, you know what I'm saying, with, a, with a, a white show. You know what I'm saying? The idea that these, you know, that sometime I feel like that is the responsibility that's put upon us and I accept it fully. And I totally, 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 there were some reviews that weren't great. There were a lot of good reviews, but there were some reviews that weren't great. And I, some of them I really appreciated. You know what I'm saying? I didn't appreciate the think pieces 
You know what I'm saying? I'm like, why does this show need a think piece? It's a comedy. You need seven pages to, re- to do a think piece on my show. You know, I, some of the reviews that, you know, didn't, I, and some of the reviews, are, I, my greatest story is I had read a review from the Atlantic, a think piece from the Atlantic, which was like my magazine, which I love. And as I'm, you know, sick, re, you know, closing, because they tell me things I missed in Black AF. I'm like, how do you know what I missed, Atlantic? But as I'm closing the laptop, I get a text from Malcolm Gladwell, who's like the Atlantic and my God. You know what I'm saying? Like in terms of, and he was very, very complimentary of the show and saying really nice things. And, you know, so I think that that is the nature of, I am one of those people who read reviews. So if reviewers want to fuck with me, they can. You know what I'm saying? Because I They might get do. an email from you, though. Yeah, yes, they might get, I want, my, my, my publishers won't let me send an email, but I want to. I want to every time. I really do. I really want to, like, I, I love these moments where I get to actually call them out, you know what I'm saying? Because right. I, I do care. You know what I'm saying? I do. I'm not one of those kind of people who I'm like, I don't care. I'm not going to play that game. I care. Well, um, to that end, this will be my last question, but a two-parter if it's okay. Yeah. A, did you enjoy acting? Is it something that you would want to keep doing? <laughs> has it, um, you know, has it affected the way you think about writing? That's part A. And then part B, have these criticisms that you're talking about made you more or less interested in continuing with Black AF, do, is it going to affect the the path that you go forward with? Absolutely, positively, acting was the scariest thing I've ever did. You know what I'm saying? It literally, I had loose stomach, you know what I'm saying, for most of the time. I, I gained such a respect for what they do. You know what I'm saying? The idea of having a 5K camera put on you, and no matter what day you're having, no matter what argument you're having, having to get in hydro emotions and try to, you know, that's, it's what they do is magic. Um, I do not think that I would act again beyond this show. Maybe I would do commercials or marriage or something, but I think that I, this is the thing for me. You know what I'm saying? This is not a, a career that I wanted to get into. This is something thing for me. And I've had some offers, but but I, you know I'm saying? I honestly feel like this is the thing that I really enjoy doing, and it was special for me to do it for this. Um, in terms of the p- polarizing nature of the show, I feel like the reason this show should get an Emmy, and I don't, I've never cared, and I've never said this before, is because about anything I've done, is because that's what art is. And I feel like the idea of there's not another show right now that you can look back, especially what we're going through. We talked about this. All these things, you know what I'm saying, that we shot a year, or these are things that we talked about, you know, and the idea that Blackish never was awarded it because the cool, comp- the cool cable shows were taking it. This is the cool cable show. You know what I'm saying? I feel like that we talked about this and, we, and during a time when everyone almost got to see it real time. And the polarizing nature of it is basically what I think most shows should be. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to ever, 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 ever do anything again that's not polarizing. Because the way that you actually get people to talk is you have to have different points of view. But is this particular conversation over or are you going to keep it going? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it again. So season season two is coming. We'll see, but I mean, if I if it if it's if it's allowed to come, I'm doing it again. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. I always have really enjoyed your stuff, and I I, Thanks, I so appreciate you doing this. Appreciate you, dog. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that, and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. 
If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.